Blog Talk Radio. October 16th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and if you run over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see the title of today's show is Quantum Politics, and a lot of people are familiar with the term quantum from quantum mechanics, and you probably don't remember exactly what we're referring to with that. So I'm hoping to intrigue you with this title involving quantum, the word quantum in it. And yeah, that's what I hoped. I hope that you tuned in because you said, what in the world does she mean by quantum politics? Or, you know, some people might just say quantum politics. That just sounds like crazy. I don't even want to listen to this show. So I'm hoping that you tuned in because you were intrigued by my little title. It was the first thing that I thought of this morning when I saw the latest news about Catalonian independence, and I will explain what I mean in a little bit. But before that, if you look, like I said, at the program notes, check them out at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see very first item is a link. And if you click on that link, you'll get over to Instagram. And on Instagram, there's this really cute graphic by Sandra Boynton, who She's wonderful because basically she's the one that I follow who helps me keep track of national this day or that day. Apparently it was national grouch day yesterday. I decided, okay, I'm not going to commemorate that particularly, but you could say that today is a little bit redundant on that. It is national cat day, national cat day today. So what I would like to do, I don't have a cat myself. I have dogs. I have Perinian shepherds, which they actually, they rub against furniture like cats but I think that's where the similarities end. So what do I wish for you guys? You guys who are the cat-owning listeners out there, I wish the best to you as well as to your callous, indifferent, four-legged overlords because I know that in your house it is the cats that rule you. At least I know that from various stories. Some people, some people they have more of a uh, mutual respect relationship with their cats. And I've heard of people able to coexist in a civilized manner, but I've heard of other situations in which cats are getting you up at crazy hours in the morning because they must be fed right then. And of course there's cats walking all over kitchen counters and awesome stuff like that too. So yeah, in any event, enjoy. And I think you'll enjoy Boynton's graphics. She's just got the cutest stuff. I've been a fan of hers since I was a teenager. 
and I got um, actually when I was in college, I went to the dorm room. In my dorm room, I had the um, actually didn't have a dorm room; it was an apartment. But I had a set of it was, they had like a sheet and comforter set that was dinosaurs, Boynton dinosaurs, which was so awesome. Um, just the cutest stuff she really has. Uh, selfishness in the chat room says nose to nose, who licks first? <laughs> the question. Uh, Rob is asking, does quantum mean arbitrary? I'll talk about what I mean by quantum. It's interesting because you know it is. It's National Cat Day, and it turns out that the thing that I thought of was not quantum mechanics, you know, in the kind of general, but this one particular example from quantum mechanics called Schrodinger cat, Schrodinger's cat, and that's probably what everybody who doesn't really know quantum mechanics, but knows a tiny bit about it. It's probably what we all think of when we're thinking of it. So we'll have a little bit of fun with that. In a way, it's it's just kind of an extension of what we were doing last Wednesday, trying to have your cake and eat it too. But what we could say is, you know, that maybe the cake is like kind of still there and then not there and... <laughs> We'll play with it. We're going to have some fun. Just Jean in the chat room says, yes, I have a doctor who says dogs have owners, cats have staff. You know, I, I'm very meticulous about using the word owner with respect to pets because there's this whole animal rights movement and they talk about guardians, you know, that you're the guardian of your animals. So I always say owner, but I hesitated a little when I was talking about cats. So I made sure to include the comment about the cat being the overlord, even though you own the cat, the cat really the boss. That's what I hear. Anyway, I'm, I'm not averse. I would have a cat at some point. Um, actually wouldn't mind it, but I got so heavily invested in dogs and I couldn't take on another creature. Now, if I tried, you know, uh, four like a creature, no way. So let's uh, go back over to the program notes. I invite all of you, if you want to peruse the program notes and get ready to call in about any of the stuff that I've got there, you can do so. The number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. The second thing that I've got in the program notes is just a link to my own Instagram, right? And the reason I did that is I mean, you should follow me anyway, but I had an interesting idea yesterday. You know, I do all these flower pictures that I post, and actually I've got one to post for you guys today, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. I, I took one this morning. So I take these pretty much every day. I'm taking some picture of a flower, and some of them come out really nice. Some of them are, are very pretty, and people start sharing them. And then one person actually suggested, hey, why don't you make a coffee table book? And you guys know how expensive it would be to print a coffee table book. There's no way that there'd be a demand for something like that. But I had the thought yesterday, what if I did a calendar? Uh, I took, you know, the 12, my 12 favorite or whatever from the last year and made a calendar for 2018. And I used it as sort of a fundraiser for the show. That's something that could be done reasonably and might actually end up being a value to people and paying for itself and everybody would be happy. So if you guys like that idea, feel free, send me comments, I don't know, through social media and everything else. If you want to go to Instagram and comment on the particular flower pictures on my Instagram that you think are calendar worthy, you want to vote 
so to speak, for things that you should be, you know, which flower pictures should be included. That's my idea. So just floating it out there, see what you guys think. I think it could be kind of fun to do a little calendar. And if you also agree, I'll go ahead and look into it. But as I said, go to the Instagram, maybe, you know, go and leave a comment on the particular flower photos and say, hey, this would be good in the calendar. And if there's enough response to it, then I'll look into it. Okay, so there's an idea. And and even if you're not into the calendar thing, just go ahead and follow me on Instagram. One thing that I'm doing there as well is I am sharing um, the tweets that I tweet when I tweet to Donald Trump. I share those there and I've got my own tags that I've completely monopolized on Instagram. Actually, one of them I've monopolized. I call it tweet to our dear leader. And that's just something that I came up with when I was first starting to do this. Why do I do this? You know, again, part of the American sense of life is defiance. If there's overbearing authority, which I think we're on the verge of in the United States in some ways, you defy it. So you go ahead and talk back and, and Twitter is a perfect way to do it. And it's fun. It's just it's it's a game. It's this hundred and forty character game that you play. So I share those on Instagram. If you want to help the proliferation of those types of things on Instagram, you can go over there, join and click like and stuff. This is something you can do. And as I said, enjoy the flower pictures. There's just a variety of things. And every so often there's other stuff that I I post as well. I've got a picture. I went and had lunch with a really dear friend on uh, Friday. So every so often follow, have fun. So that's that. Vote for the calendar if you like it. Nobody in the chat room is talking about the calendar, so I don't know. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a flop. But I, I know for sure that there wouldn't be enough of a market for a coffee table book. And I was thinking, well, maybe a calendar. A lot of people do calendars. It could be fun. Uh, maybe people just don't even hang calendars anymore. Their whole thing is I, – I purchased a calendar one time just for one picture that I really wanted. It was um, this British photographer, and it was – a what they called a fog bow like a rainbow but fog and with the snow and everything it was just this gorgeous picture that this guy happened to take and it you know went viral and it was just beautiful went ahead and grabbed the calendar just for that so sometimes calendars are worthwhile in any event uh so let's run over here's the story that inspired the title this morning the headline from new york times is Catalonia's leader facing deadline won't say if region declared independence. So this is the latest. And I've talked in the previous couple shows what I ended up thinking about this whole independence movement, that I was skeptical as to whether Catalonian independence would actually be good for the people in Catalonia, because it didn't seem that there was a clear principled agenda from the president or, or the other leaders. And I reached that conclusion based on listening to a podcast in which, um, and this is from Mises Institute, where an expert was discussing specific things that Catalonia was, you know, doing in the ruling of, of their own region already, and also things that they had intended with respect to the secession itself. So, you know, they're going to succeed, excuse me, they're going to secede, not succeed. I I don't think that they're going to succeed with this, but they're trying to secede, you know, their intent is to secede. And then they don't want any sub region within Catalonia that wants to remain in Spain to be able to in turn secede and remain as part of Spain. 
So um, I think it's a little bit hypocritical at the, at the very least, right, that they think they have the right to do it. But, you know, they're they're not just speaking for the ones who want this independence. They would also be affecting the lives critically of the people within Catalonia who do not want it. And there's, you know, enough of a mixture of good and bad in either staying in or going that I would suggest trying to stay in and work within. So, so what's going on right now, there was this deadline that has passed for the separatists to make clear what their intentions are. Are they staying or are they going? I actually should have put as one of the musical links, remember that song, should I stay or should I go now? It's from a class, right? I'm revealing age again, but whatever. Um, that isn't that the it was from the clash i think it is in any event that would have been a good one to do should i stay or should i go uh because they have not announced they haven't said what they want to do and the you know spanish uh prime minister and then also the deputy prime minister are making all these statements they seem not to be open to any sort of the dialogue that the president of Catalonia is asking for. They seem to, you know, be very reluctant to do this. And what they're threatening is that if they have to, they're going to invoke this, you know, semi-mysterious but very ominous sounding Article 155 that's never been invoked before and take over the entire region, you know, so that there is no autonomous government anymore in Catalonia and what's going to befall the leaders and all that stuff, you know, who knows. So uh, last week we talked about the fact that the statement that Puigmont, who's this president of Catalonia, that he gave seemed to both declare and not declare independence. And it has been called purposefully confusing, purposefully ambiguous. And it seems like he's trying to play, you know, to get some dialogue, some concessions from the Spanish government. And so far, he seems not to be succeeding very well. But what he's doing, you know, instead of actually making any particular announcement one way or the other, he allowed this Monday morning deadline to pass and instead wrote a letter in which uh, he was asking urgently for a meeting. They want to have dialogue. And he is suggesting that conflict could be resolved, according to the New York Times, with the help of international mediators. And and the feeling is, the reaction is that he, through this letter that he sent, is trying to, uh, you know, bring in and, and encourage some people at the in, on the international scene to step in and try to force a dialogue between the Spanish government and the Catalonian government. Uh, Apparently, the prime minister of Belgium has stepped in and said that Europe should recognize this crisis as a challenge and say that, you know, that there should be dialogue and everything like that. But he's the only one that I've heard of that has said this. We, you know, read last week in one of the stories that I had in the link that France has said that if Catalonia declares independence, it will be automatically kicked out of the EU. So that's isolation for sure and not any sort of support. Belgium may be supportive. How much is that going to get them? Who knows? What the current situation is, it seems, is that they're asking for 
uh, an answer, you know, are you or are you not going to follow through with this de- you know, declaration of independence by Thursday? So that's the next big sort of deadline or milestone that, that we want to watch. This, the, um, the deputy prime minister is the one who's suggesting, she's saying that this is intended, this letter was intended to help gain support from the European Union, and so far they haven't been able to get any support from this. And she says, we have the feeling that Mr. Puigmont is addressing his letter much more to people outside than to the citizens. And to me, that cuts both ways, right? If, if the only people that you have to potentially help you are on the outside, that's not necessarily bad to try to enlist the people from the outside. So for example, the uh, counter-revolutionaries in Iran who have reached out to administration after administration in the United States and have been shot down time and again. We have not helped the people who would actually like real freedom in Iran. Uh, I don't blame them at all for reaching out. Why? Because at least as compared to the theocratic, horrible regime in Iran, the revolutionaries there, you know, the potential revolutionaries, the, uh, you know, the insurgents, they are very principled in, in, you know, in the cause of freedom. They would be, you know, head and shoulders above what they've got going in Iran right now. So I would be very supportive of them. Here, as I said, just based on what I've seen, it's not clear that a Catalonian government, an independent Catalonian government, would be that much better for the citizens. So, it's, you know, it's not like it's, you know, terrible, terrible oppression that they're suffering. It sounds like in some ways they are being taken advantage of. And I I do think that it would be good if Catalonia could get some concessions from Spain and be treated a little bit better. But it's not such a stark contrast that I would say, oh, yeah, you know, you really need to look outside because, you know, you're being bombed with weapons of mass destruction or, you know, you're being put in some sort of concentration camps or, you know, horrible, horrible things are happening to you. Uh, The Iranian citizens, some of them, there's real horrible, oppressive stuff going on to some of the uh, Iranian citizens. You know, you've seen the stories about anybody who is remotely emo sometimes gets, you know, imprisoned or beat up or, you know, there's all sorts of cultural oppression at the very least going on in, in Iran. Um, Robert in the chat room says, yes, I'm right about the clash. Yeah. So should I stay or should I go now? It's still unclear. And imagine letting this go on day after day after day. So what was the first thing that came to my mind? The first thing that came to my mind is this funny Schrodinger cat example that has been, you know, well-known in people, people who actually sort of study either quantum mechanics or in philosophy, they like to bring it in as well. It's a thought experiment. I'm just over on the Wikipedia article. I am, you know, it's funny. My undergraduate degree is math applied science. And the reason I did that was I started out as an economics major in college at, at UCLA. And I realized in having debates with people, discussions with people about economics and politics and stuff like that, that the real answers to, you know, economics questions and political questions depended on philosophy. 
So it's not like you can just draw a whole bunch of graphs at the level of economics and then suddenly come up with the right answer and prove that capitalism is the best system or whatever it is. Like maybe I was thinking I was going to, you really got to hit at a fundamental level. You got to hit the level of philosophy. And then at the same time, um, being at UCLA with all the liberals and everything, I just got very skeptical about a future in, in humanities. And also at the same time, I had a math professor who uh, was just a really great teacher and, and funny and everything else. And I had, you know, I, I was a real math geek as a kid. I shouldn't even talk about this. It's very nerdy. I used to do those math contests where you would go and take a math test for fun, like extra math tests. You would sign up to do these. And if you performed well, you could win, you know, ribbons and trophies and all this stuff. I actually won a trophy for taking a math test. So, okay, that's how geeky I am. So, you know, here I am in college. I'm getting frustrated with any sort of humanities future. And then I have this really inspiring math professor who is saying, hey, you know, I can tell you have a brain in your head. You could be doing a lot better than you're doing. And, you know, started talking to me and helping me. And um, so I became a math major. But I didn't want to give up all my coursework. So they have this interesting, I don't know if they still have it at UCLA. You know, it's been a while. But they had this design your own major, math applied science. And one of the sciences, quote unquote, to which you could apply your mathematics is economics because, you know, you do use some mathematics in at least certain courses and, and fields in, in economics. A lot of microeconomics ends up using math. I actually like macro better, but let's just ignore that. I somehow figured out how to cobble together this major and not lose my coursework, right? So what did I also take to apply my math to applied science? Some physics. So I'm taking physics. And physics, as you might know, if you've heard this, sometimes it's difficult for women to picture some of the three-dimensional space where you've got force vectors and all these things working. So I loved physics, but I did so much better in a class, say, like thermodynamics, which was just more math and not having to picture a three-dimensional space with all these force vectors and everything when I took just the standard upper division mechanics course in physics, I loved it. I'd sit in class. I'd be nodding my head. I'd be excited. And then I'd go try to do the problems and I would just, uh. but I did okay. I did okay. I didn't do great physics. It was tough. Then I took quantum mechanics. I signed up for quantum mechanics. And that was a class where I couldn't even get excited about it in class. I was just lost. I was completely lost. And maybe here's why, because let's look at this Schrodinger cat. So this is a whole big preamble to tell you, I don't know anything about quantum mechanics, really. And now when we're going to look at this little limited exposure to it, I'll think, well, maybe it's a good thing. Um, you know, perhaps it's just, uh, you know, me just, you know, not basically wanting to excuse myself for, for not to, there's a, there's a term I'm trying to think of and I can't think of it, but I'm, you know, trying to excuse myself for not being good at quantum mechanics. You know, it's just, uh, oh, I'll think of the term in a bit in any event. So here it is. Here's Schrodinger cat, Schrodinger cat. What they try to tell you in the Schrodinger cat example is that maybe a cat that's in a box that's exposed to things that could kill it. Maybe that cat, may simultaneously 
both be alive and dead. And they call this quantum superposition. Um, Quantum superposition, they say, there is a random subatomic event that either may or may not occur. And the phrase that I use to describe this is what we would call probabilistic causality. That, you know, instead of actually saying that if X, then Y, you know, that something is actually going to occur based on some pre-existing conditions, in quantum mechanics, they try to say that it's there's some sort of a probability that a certain thing is going to occur, and they actually want to absorb that idea of probability into the identity of stuff. So a thing doesn't have a fixed identity. Instead, it has an identity that's potentially 40% this and 60% that or whatever. So the cat could be, you know, 40% dead and 60% alive. Now you see the connection, right, to this Catalonian independence thing that I was thinking of this morning. It's like, okay, you know, 40% independent, 60% not, or whatever it is. He wants everybody to accept that Catalonia is both independent and, you know, as still part of Spain at the same time that it's, it's, it could be either. Now, what you do know, right, is that if you actually sort of opened up the box and looked to see, you know, that in effect that the cat has to be either alive or dead. And if you go to the Wikipedia page for Schrodinger cat, they have the graphic up there on the right hand side. So it's so sad, right? It's national cat day. And here's this poor cat. What is the cat exposed to in here? There's radioactivity, and then a flask is shattered, which releases poison that kills the cat, right? It says the Copenhagen interpretation implies that after a while, the cat is simultaneously alive and dead. Yet, when one looks in the box, one sees the cat either alive or dead, not both alive and dead. Well, at least they say that that's it. And they say this poses the question of when exactly quantum superposition ends and reality collapses into one possibility or the other. So the idea is that there's some reality in which you've got probabilistic nature of something that it's, you know, 40% alive or 60% dead or whatever it is. And in standard philosophy in rational philosophy from Aristotle, we learn, right. That everything that exists, has an identity that causality is a consequence of things having identity that things you know they can act in one of two ways they can act either in accordance with their nature or apart from their nature but the idea that something can have a nature that's 40 percent a and 60 percent non-a is just nonsensical to someone who is going to insist on this framework and everything that I've ever seen in my life, it has a specific identity, right? It's, it's either a or non a, uh, it can't be both a and non a at the same time. And in the same respect, you know, to, to go back to Aristotle. So perhaps this is why, you know, and I, I get, you know, I guess the word that I was trying to think of was this, you know, begrudging. I mean, you know, I've got this, you know, in this begrudging way, I'm saying, okay, well, I couldn't hack quantum mechanics. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. It's it's just completely deliberately illogical. And that seems to be 
what the Catalonian president is doing. Now, if you read the article, if you read the New York Times article, you see in one of the paragraphs there, they talk about the fact that he may be doing this to satisfy everybody in his precariously cobbled together coalition. And so he's got, you know, like the hardliners and then the more moderates and the the hardliners want him to just go out there and declare independence now and revolution and let's go, you know. And then the more moderates are saying, hey, you know, we don't necessarily want to do the independence thing. We might be doing this in order to bargain for concessions for a better place. We, you know, if we can't get the concessions, then eventually we'd be willing to have independence, right? So he's trying to satisfy the demands, right, of everybody within this precariously cobbled together coalition, as I'm calling it. And what does that lead to? That leads to a pragmatism that leads to, as someone was saying in the chat room last Wednesday, I remember, was it Robert? It might have been Robert, Robert, who also gave me the confirmation that I was right about the clash earlier. But, you know, that that uh, if you are a pragmatist, you're inherently going to be pursuing those contradictions you're going to be pursuing the the a and non a and that seems exactly like what's going on here so you know is the box going to be opened on thursday thursday is the next deadline that they've put forth are we going to find out whether the cat is alive or dead whether catalonia has actually declared independence or not or are we going to be still in this quantum politics this attempt at quantum politics, it doesn't seem to be working very well, right? So this might be just a little bit of an experiment in the real world that even in the world of human beings where a lot of people are willing to go along with fantasies of various kinds and stuff, right? It's it's not even working very well in the, the real world. Selfishness in the chat room says, yeah, it sounds like fence sitting. Yeah, fence sitting is another way to put it. But here I am, right? I'm just a geek. So I'm it's six in the morning or whatever, I'm reading this story from New York Times. And the first thing that occurs to me is Schrodinger's cat. So I'm thinking quantum politics and stuff. And that this is, this is where I go. This is where my mind goes. So hopefully you found that intriguing. And now it's, you know, you know how they talk about having an earworm that if somebody plays the song for you, that it's really a little bit annoying and it sticks in your head forever and ever. So now I've just planted this Schrodinger's cat example in your mind. And now you guys who are listening to this show, now you're going to go out and be the geeks who have this thing. You know, you're going to think of this as opposed to fence sitting or other ways of putting it, you know, having your cake and eating it too and stuff. We're just going to another level and and having some fun, fun with this. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed my little diversion there. I'm going to take a musical break and I wonder if I should look for some reactions to, to this out there on social media and stuff in uh, yeah. Selfishness gave, gave me the fence sitting reaction. Hopefully you found it fun. Anyway, let me, let me go over here and find my little music clip. I will take a sip of water and I'll be right back.
Okay, everyone, I'm back. I think you can hear me now. So, yes, I had a a little fun with the famous Schrodinger cat quantum mechanics example, applying it to Catalonian independence. And I'm going to apply it to one more news story. I may ask you for help if I'm going to shoehorn other stories into this little theme that I came up with this morning. But I've got one more that I can do myself for you, and it has to do with Apple. So I think that should be interesting for you. So I'm going to look at that. But let's see if anybody on Twitter is scratching their head or anything. Oh, somebody somebody followed me, said, okay, this this person's a geek. I'll go ahead and follow her. That's, that's pretty cool. What do we got over? Yeah, no, on, on, on Facebook, no, no reactions. Okay, so I'm, I'm a geek. I think maybe just a few people got the kick out of it. I was laughing at six in the morning because of this, but that's just kind of who I am. Hopefully you you'll uh, you'll get a kick too. So go over to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. If you do want to call in, like I said, 760-888-5817 is the number. Press one if you want to talk to me as well, ask a question, make a comment, et cetera. You can continue to do that, of course, over in the chat room as well. Here's the other story that I want to apply this Schrodinger cat you know, again, probabilistic causation that something is 40% that or 60% that, you know, 40% A, 60% non-A. And we can apply that to this story from 9 to 5 Mac. Thanks to Motive Power for sharing that out there on Twitter this morning. Apple's diversity VP apologizes for controversial statement at Summit this week. Now, first of all, you know, Apple has a VP of diversity, and it's not just that. It's diversity and inclusion. So they have a VP. And interesting enough, so this diversity VP was out at a conference. It was called the One World Summit in Colombia. And she made some actually pretty good statements, right? Uh, at, at the event there, Smith, who is this diversity VP for Apple, was explaining how Apple focuses on diversity and commented that there could be 12 white, blue-eyed, blonde men in a room who are still diverse, right? So she's saying people can have the same race. They can all be of the horribly you know, discounted in the culture today male sex. Oh, you mean a guy? Uh, so imagine, you know, white, blue-eyed, blonde men in a room who are still diverse. So here's a quote from Smith. This is the diversity and inclusion vice president of Apple. This is what she said. She said, diversity is the human experience. She says, I get a little bit frustrated when diversity or the term diversity is tagged to the people of color or the women or the LGBT. And she says, there can be 12 white, blue-eyed, blonde men in a room, and they are going to be diverse, too, because they're going to bring a different life experience and life perspective to the conversation. Bravo, right? She said some really nice thing there, okay? Because diversity, in any sense that would be relevant to productivity or creativity in a workplace, is coming from your ideas. And yeah, it is true that sometimes people who have different color or a different sex or a different sexual orientation and 
those are different experiences that people can draw upon and then come up with different ideas and then bring them to the table. But all of those experiences, of course, have to be processed through your rational faculty. You have to digest them and internalize them and then bring them out. So the mere fact that somebody has a different color or different sex or different sexual orientation stuff doesn't mean that they're going to bring anything unique to the table at all because you have no idea what the processing, the mental processing is like, right? And at the same time, the mere fact that somebody is of a certain race or sex or sexual orientation um, doesn't mean that they don't have a whole bunch of interesting experiences to bring to the table. And maybe they don't have as wide a range of different experiences, but they're really the type of person who is observant and milks all the different experiences and connections that they see in their lives to all the different things. And then suddenly you've got somebody who can bring a lot to the table, even if they don't have. So, you know, this idea that it's all linked to those things is, is bogus. And so bravo to her, right. For saying this. However, then she turned around and ended up apologizing for these remarks you know no doubt she came under some sort of pressure she apologized to apple employees who i guess got upset about this for her choice of words they sent the i guess yesterday yesterday and this was published on the 14th okay so this is actually last week uh, late last week she sent this apology to the team members at apple and she explained what she meant and said that she understands why people were offended. So here's from her statement. She says, last week, while attending a summit in Bogota, I made some comments as part of a conversation on the many factors that contribute to diversity and inclusion. She says, I regret the choice of words I used to make this point. I understand why some people took offense. My comments were not representative of how I think about diversity or how Apple sees it. For that, I'm sorry. More importantly, I want to assure you Apple's view and our dedication to diversity has not changed. Understanding that diversity includes women, people of color, LGBTQ, she, you know, she added extra acronym there, um, people and all underrepresented minorities is at the heart of our work to create an environment that is inclusive of everyone, end quote. So she completely contradicted what she said. And so then what is it that she's saying? Is diversity about simply skin color, sex, sexual orientation, maybe you're transgender. Is it about that? Or is it actually about the ideas that you bring to the table, perspectives, experience, not just experience, you know, the, the mere fact that you were exposed to something doesn't mean that you digested or made anything of it, whatever. It all depends what you make of it. So what is it about? So is she going to say now, well, it's, you know, 40% this, 60% that. Now she could say, okay, well, it's all this. But nonetheless, that statement that she made is true, right? But then here she is, she's walking it back. So is she saying that the statement that she made about the 12 white, you know, blue-eyed blonde men, is she saying that that's right or that's not right? Or is it, again, another Schrodinger cat situation where it's partly that that could be diverse and then partly it can't be diverse? Interesting. 
Yeah. As Josh in the chat room says, she actually said something that was correct. She did. And then, unfortunately, she walked it back. He's saying she's saying that she was wrong and she was lying. I mean, this is this is the problem. She says that um, her comments were not representative of how I think about diversity. What I can tell you, I mean, obviously, I didn't see her say this. It'd be interesting to watch her say this on video. If anybody's got a video and they want to send it to me, I'd be interested just to look at her mannerisms and how confident she seems with what she's saying. Is she groping for words and she, or, you know, is she speaking as if this is, you know, that she feels at home with this way of thinking what I'm reading here, what I'm reading here in the excerpt in the article, she seems very, you know, well-versed in this. She seems like this is very natural for her, the way that it is. Um, It's exactly the way that maybe I would say it. And of course, I think that this is the right view. So I I can't even believe what she said. Now, I believe that she regrets the choice of (laughs) the choice of words. Um, Those words are the right words to express the point that she was making. And the point she was making is right. And she's trying to walk it back and say that somehow she's going to have it all the different ways. You can't, you know, you, you can't. So it's going to be interesting to see if there's any further follow up, follow up on this, but yeah, they've got the whole memo. If you want to read the whole apology memo, what you know is that she was really pretty much told that she must apologize. Probably otherwise she would lose her job or something. And that's why she did it. So I would take that entire apology letter to be fairly meaningless. It's sad that she's doing it. Wouldn't it have been awesome if she said, oh, yeah, no, I really meant that. And, you know, here and actually she happens to be a black woman. You can see if you uh, check out the article. It'd be really interesting if Apple ended up firing its VP of inclusion and diversity because she stood up on principle for the thing that she said that seem to be very natural to her. Yeah, just Jean says if her comments weren't representative of her view, then what would ever, you know, make her think to to say that statement? Yeah, like I said, I read it to you. Didn't it sound like it was coming very naturally from her? It, it, it didn't seem like she was groping, you know, that this is something that she was just recently thinking about or anything. She seemed pretty confident and she may have thought as well. I mean, here she is. She is a, you know, a, a black woman and she's, you know, speaking. Latin America, by the way, is full of people with a lot better ideas than people in our culture, at least if Craig, listener to my show, uh, is, you know, he's sending me good stuff from Latin America all the time. That There's a, a lot of good pro-freedom people and, and very rational people. They don't necessarily buy into all of this identity politics and all the garbage that we've got here. It's just too bad that she did not stand up for principle because it'd be really funny to make Apple fire someone like this. And I imagine she'd have all kinds of jobs lined up if she, if she went ahead and did it. So it's, it's really kind of sad that she chose the Schrodinger cat approach, came back and said, Oh, well, no, maybe it's 60%, you know, Really, it is tied to all these irrelevant characteristics, completely irrelevant. You know, that, that's the, the collectivist idea is that somehow the fact 
that you were born with a certain skin color, hair color, eye color, whatever, you know, that you're of a, born of a certain sex, that you have a certain sexual orientation, that somehow this is relevant to the ideas that you're going to bring to a workforce, to a team, a creative team at Apple or something. And it's, it's ridiculous. I've got a couple calls. I'm going to go ahead and grab one right now. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, is it me? Yes, it's you. Hi. Okay, great. Hi, this is uh, Tom Jones in SoCal. Oh, okay. Welcome, Tom. You haven't called before, right? Right. Yeah, I'm a new caller. I've been listening for like, the last month or so, and I love your show. Oh, well, thanks. I'm having a good time doing it, so I'm glad people are enjoying it. Uh, so I wanted to talk about um, this. This seems to be connected with kind of what appeals um what people are attracted to in Donald Trump in that he doesn't apologize when people demand it of him. Mm. Um, and I think that that that's kind of what was attractive to me at first. I mean, I, I didn't vote for him, but I was kind of hoping he would win over Hillary. And um, then, you know, obviously with the last week with the, uh, his tweets about, trying to censor the press I, I, that was all gone all that hope died but he uh it seems like people are attracted to someone who is able to say something and even if it offends someone just never apologize for it and the people that do apologize you know they they're still accepted but you know they don't you know it's not uh it's, they don't have any kind of credibility anymore. No, exactly. And did, I don't know if you saw um, if uh, at the end of this article, it was actually pretty funny, and, and Motive Power made sure to remind me about it in the in the Twitter. At the end of this, there's an editor note, and they said that from this article, they had to remove the comment section, and the reason <laughs> that they gave for having to remove it was because. WTF is wrong with you people. (laughs) So I think people are not having much respect for this woman who, you know, she goes out there and she says a, and then she tries to say non a, and she's trying to get away with, you know, 40% a and 60% non a is, is the nature of, of, you know, what she's going for with diversity or something. And you either think diversity is about all of these irrelevant characteristics or you don't. And she's trying to not take a stand, you know, fence sitting, if we want to put it in a less technical way. Do you think it's going to work? No. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, I don't, it's the, you know, Ayn Rand said, I think uh, in a, in a contest between people with different ideas, um, the most consistent is going to win. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, she's not consistent. No, no, unfortunately not. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was looked promising that first comment. Yeah. But no, you know, and maybe what she tries, maybe she was trying to be edgy there or something. I don't know what she was, but it, it seemed <laughs> from from reading it that she was very at home with with what she was saying. And it's it's sad that she walked yeah. it all back. Yeah. Um, any yeah, anything really. else? Did so? Did the Schrodinger cat uh, application to the Catalonian yeah. independence make sense, or did it make sense, or was it just yeah, completely yeah, weird? Yeah, yeah, I get it. 
Okay. To okay. Catalonian, yeah, to Catalonian independence. Yeah, I, I think um, the he's obviously trying to buy time. He must be talking to sure. people and you know in some kind of negotiation. Um, and a diplomat might say, oh, that you know he's being he's being very political and diplomatic and stuff like that. But he's he's making a fool of himself as the leader of you know the supposed independence movement. Yeah, I love that he's, you know, he's refusing to answer the direct question. Did you declare independence or not? Just completely not, you know, even answering that question. And he he is, he's trying to have it both ways for as as long as he can. So maybe the box will be opened and we'll be peering in on Thursday, I guess. But as I said, I'm, I mean, do you have any horse in that race, so to speak? I'm, you know, slightly against really. Actually, pretty heavily uh, again. Yeah, I, I I literally just had a conversation online about this, um, and with with a friend who was saying that we have to support them if they if they want independence from a state whose politics they don't agree with. And um, I, my point is, no, uh, I don't have to support them. I don't owe them a kind word. Um, I'm not stopping them. They can do whatever they want, but. Um, I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, no, to, I, I don't. I don't necessarily think they state. can just do whatever they want, you know, for the reasons that I've explained mm-hmm. in earlier shows. But yeah. I, I am somewhat sympathetic with the desire to do it. But if they're going to do it, they need to do it in a principled fashion. And, and people today don't seem to be capable of. It. This is the same reason I'm skeptical of this Article 5 convention movement that Mark mm. Levin and other people have stirred up. Because if we were to have an Article 5 convention right now, what would come out of that? You think it would be so much better than what we have today? I think not, right? I don't, I don't think it would be principled yeah. either. Yeah, it, there's the, this idea that we're going to change politics by um, – you know, kind of by force, uh, it's not going to work out. We have to persuade people. We have to use reason. Yeah, or the, or that you're going to get away with it on a level of just pure political strategy either, that you're going to make any yeah. real significant lasting change that way. More and more as time goes on, I get convinced that, no, that's not going to be the case. Yeah, people don't, people don't accept defeat on a technicality. Right. Right. Now you can you can put, you know, like mobsters in prison on a technicality. That works out okay. But in terms of yeah. making lasting change in politics, I don't think it's gonna work. So So thank you, Tom, for your call. I'm gonna go ahead and grab another, but hopefully um you'll call back and, and talk again. Let me get the next caller in the queue. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hello, Amy, uh John Kenny in Carson City. How are you? How you doing, John? I'm doing fine. Okay. Okay. Uh, regarding the Schrodinger's cat, I'm racking my brain here, but I dimly remember that the purpose of that example, uh, you know, the cat can be either alive or dead, was put forth as a counter to the uncertainty principle of Niels Bohr. I mean, whoever, I, I can't remember who came up with it, but the example is Isn't that Heisenberg? How, uh, uncertainty principle is Heisenberg. Not that Heisenberg, I can tell you well, every... I'm, I'm still yeah, going to ask okay, you to explain I, what you mean, but I just remember it's associated with Heisenberg. So go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, somebody was trying to counter him 
by giving this Schroeder's cat example and sh- uh, saying essentially, look how ridiculous this is. The cat, and by the way, there's the phrase, the cat can be thought of as dead or alive. Okay, there's that phrase, can be thought of. Right. Now, um, you know, in fact, in realist, in reality, the cat is either dead or alive. Right. It's not some halfway point or anything. But that was put forth to show how ridiculous the statement was. And then everybody okay. just took it literally. Everybody just took it literally. Uh, okay. You know, like, okay. In- in- including including me in like the first 30 minutes of my show. So yeah. you're 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 saying basically that this example was put forth to show how ridiculous it is that when you right, open this right. box, it is either going to be alive or dead. Yeah. Now, obviously, I still take the right message from it, but I take the intent of the example the wrong way, and I just spread it out. And you know, I am now guilty of misinformation, is what you're telling me. Well, I you know I don't I, I, I am part of the disinformation research. problem. Well, I'll tell you, the uh, the folks over at uh, Skeptical Inquirer always bring this up the the uncertainty principle and also quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. The the the, uh, the psychics and you know astrologers always throw in the term quantum mechanics, and they have yes. no idea what it is. You know, this is all yeah. part of postmodernism philosophy. You well, know, just just be, be on the record or, or that I the the whole time. If, even if I've uh, mischaracterized what the purpose of the example was, um, and actually I don't know that I really said that the purpose of the example was to prove that this is okay. I actually didn't say, I don't think I said anything one way or the other. So we'll go, we'll go back and listen to whether it was. Maybe maybe what I was saying was purposefully ambiguous, right? So it was like 40% that this example was in favor of quantum theory and like 60% against but actually, I think I didn't really say one way or the other, but I, I, I was using it, you know, just to explain what they mean. But, yeah, obviously, I reject it. And the, yeah. the way that I've the way that I've thought about this issue. No, and I think I think I've, I mean, that was that was clear that I rejected this way of thinking, you know, that you could think of the cat as both alive and dead. There's no way. And like I said, the Catalonian president, he's finding that in reality, trying to yeah. use this approach is not getting him anywhere. We don't know what's going to happen to this. Apple VP of diversity, but we know that Puigmont is just not having a good time. He's got Belgium on his side so far. That's all we know, right? So um, it, it does. It doesn't seem to be serving the purpose. Right, right. The, the, okay, but the now, way that yeah. I've always, the way I've thought yeah. about this, like if you want to get even a little more geeky about this, you know, this kind of probabilistic causality, what they're doing is they are substituting epistemology kind of you know what we know for metaphysics which is like you know the nature of the stuff there so right. what what we could say is true what you and I could say is true is and, and you know what what does it mean to say that there's you know a 40% chance that the cat is alive and the 60% chance that the cat is dead at some given point what it means right is that we are in a state of uncertainty we don't know whether all the events that would cause the death of the cat have taken place or not, we can only say that there's a certain probability that those events have taken place. We just don't have the knowledge necessary to say one way or the other. Now that's one thing, you know, to say, okay, we don't have the knowledge. And so therefore we're just, you know, making a prediction, but to then impute that onto the nature of the thing 
you know, to say, okay, well, it is 40% alive and, you know, 60% dead. That's, that's the error. And that's the error that anybody who accepts the Aristotelian axioms is going to say, no, you know, this is, this is wrong. And as I said, it's, it's me, it's like, you know, um, I still can't think of the phrase that I've gotten in my, in my mind where I've got this begrudging attitude about my failure in quantum mechanics. I dropped it after like three weeks or something because they have a deadline where you have to drop the class. Otherwise you'll fail. And I, I sat in that class and I sat in that class and I just wasn't grasping it. And I don't know if it was the professor or that just the subject matter was unintelligible or both just couldn't hack it. Yeah, well, both. Well, does that come from, uh, Niels Bohr, uh, his theory on the atom, when he said no subatomic particles have a fixed uh, space, you can't tell where they are. They could be anywhere. Yeah, like you, you could, you could either know the velocity or the position, but not both, right? That's that was the yeah. whole problem. And yeah. so I guess these are all the examples that they have been using to sort of talk about the absurdity of it. But yeah, maybe it is true that it happens to be that you cannot observe both the velocity and the position of the particle oh, at the same or, time in the or, same respect. Or, it, do, it doesn't mean yeah. that the, the, you know, the position is indeterminate or that the, you know, there is a position, there is some definite position. You just don't happen to know what it is, you know? Yeah. Well, well, yeah. here's what it came down to. And now that it's coming back to me, the fact that you're observing it causes the position and velocity. How's that? Mm-hmm. The right. observer causes uh, yeah. the reality. Now that that opens up the door to everything in, in postmodern. You know, right. your thought causes the position of the electron, say. Yes. So that's interesting. Good old, good old primacy uh, of, of consciousness. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Now, um, let's see. Uh, regarding this uh, uh, vice president of diversity. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure she's going to get fired <clears throat> because um, the concept of diversity is a leftist tool, a leftist weapon. They don't mm-hmm. mean like somebody has this experience and somebody has that experience and both people are blunt. That ain't it. That was thrown out long ago. This is a weapon, meaning diversity means a black person. Their skin is black, okay, an Asian person, you know, an Indian, you name it. That's what they're talking about. When they say diversity, all that uh, fluff from uh, this young lady, it's from an individualist perspective, and it's correct, but that's not what they mean by diversity. I mean, it's as blunt as it can get. Same thing with Black Lives Matter. Remember when that popped up? Somebody, I think O'Malley, said, oh, all lives matter. And he was shouted down. He said, absolutely not. This is a weapon of the left. They mean blacks, and they don't mean whites. Okay. Right. So, yeah. so that's what she's facing. And, so you uh, think, you think even though she apologized, left, even though she apologized, you think she's going to be fired? Well, oh yeah, yeah. They they can't let this. The, the head of Apple is a hard leftist, and uh, he realizes you know there are uh, ideas out there that are leftist. They're they're meant to undermine aspects of capitalism, uh, di- diversity. Not meaning individualism, but diversity means the state is in there uh, deciding employment. You know, they give quotas. That's what, yep. that's what it really means. And if you don't have the quotas, you're going to get sued. 
And that's uh, eroding capitalism, which is what they want. They don't care at all about individualism or diversity. So anyway. Right. Yeah. That's, okay. Well, gonna we're gonna we're gonna see. We're gonna see. I mean, she's she's attempting okay. to sit on that fence. She's attempting to say the cat is forty percent alive, sixty percent <laughs> dead, and we'll see yeah. if she succeeds. Thanks very much for your call, John. And okay. Thanks, we will, Amy. Yeah, I look forward to talking again. Okay, everyone. Now I've got another caller on the board, but that person does not have the one key. So if you did want to talk, ask a question, make a comment. Make sure when you do call in that you press the one. The number is 760-888-5817. I'm going to do a little music, and I'll be right back. Okay, everyone, I am back, and if you go over to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, you will see a very interesting article that we've got for the next piece, and it's Why Are Millennials Wary of Freedom? And I invite you, as we talk about this article, to think whether I can shoehorn this into my overall theme having to do with quantum politics or not. But this article you know, is asking basically why is it that millennials as an age group, and it's you know as we're we're going to see as we look into the article here and the statistics, as an age group, regardless of political persuasion, why are they wary of freedom? And this article poses a you know very interesting answer, and it'll be you know you can call me in and call in and uh, let me know what you think of the answer. It sure got my brain going, and it sure seems plausible that this is an explanation, what we might call an error theory, because at least on this show, freedom, I believe, is is a wonderful thing. And I always talk about the value of freedom for human life, for sustaining human life. If people have their rights respected, which means that they are free from the initiation of force, then they can engage in all of the wonderful productive activities that sustain human life and that make it so rich and, and wonderful. So why are millenni- millennials wary of freedom? The article starts out with some alarming statistics. It says that according to the World Values Survey, only about 30% of Americans born after 1980 believe that it is absolutely essential to live in a democratic country. Now, you know, as well as I do today, democratic country is used as sort of a proxy phrase to mean free, somewhat free. Everybody believes that if you live in a democratic society when you vote and stuff, that somehow that's going to get you freedom necessarily. We know it won't, you know, if we really think about it at a technical level, it could be mob rule and you won't be living in in a free society, but that's the way that most people think about it. So take that with a grain of salt, but note only 30%, 30% of Americans, Americans born after 1980, believe that it's essential to live in that type of society. This is compared to 72% of Americans who were born before World War II. 
That's a huge difference. 72% of Americans before, you know, before World War II, they believe absolutely essential to live in a democratic country. Only 30% post-1980. Now, here's another one. 1995, 16% of Americans in their late teens and early adulthood thought that democracy was a bad idea. 16%. A bad idea, democracy. In 2011, the number increased to 24%. So by, you know, another 50% in terms of percentage points. That's a huge jump. They say young Americans are also disproportionately skeptical of free speech. 2015 poll from the Pew Research Center found 40% of millennials believe that the government should be able to regulate certain types of offensive speech. Only 27% of Gen Xers, 20% of baby boomers, and 12% of the silent generation, 70 to 87, share that opinion. So the number of Americans who are willing to entertain this idea of censorship, some sort of censorship of offensive speech, that's gone up as well. Now, some of the conservative commentators have said that all of this is because of the liberal, you know, the, the left-leaning academia that we've got on the college campuses, that this is the reason, that it's intellectual. And what the author of this article is putting forth is that it's not about ideas as much as it is about psychology. And it, it's fascinating. But if you listen to what the author is saying here, and let me give credit where it's due, this is Clay Rutledge, who wrote this, published October 14th, New York Times. It's a very plausible thing. So one thing that you want to look at, first of all, is because ideology, yes, it can play a role, but Rutledge puts forth some statistics that said that these trends transcend any political party affiliation. So here's a poll. 2016 Gallup survey found that a majority of both Democratic and Republican students believe that colleges should be allowed to restrict speech that is purposefully offensive to certain groups. So they did a survey of student attitudes, and they've got a link in the article if you want to find it. It was released just last Wednesday by FIRE, you know, Freedom Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. They found that 66% of Democratic, 47% of Republican students believe that there are times a college should withdraw a campus speaker's invitation after it has been announced. So, you know, if it causes too much outrage, I guess. A survey published by Brookings Institution, this was back in September, found 20% of Democratic and 22% of Republican students agreed that it was acceptable for student groups to use violence to prevent a person from speaking. So this is the sort of thing that's going on. And again, Rutledge's point is that, yes, ideology could play a role here. And you see the percentages are a bit different between Democrats and Republicans. But nonetheless, there are alarming numbers of anti-freedom students, even amongst Republicans, with these statistics. That, you know, to sum up what Rutledge is saying here. So what Rutledge asks is this. If wariness of democracy and free speech does not represent a political position, what does it represent? 
And this is what he says. He says, what unites so many young Americans in these attitudes? He says, I propose the answer is fear. So I propose the answer is fear, the ultimate enemy of freedom. And then the question is, why are they so afraid? And Rutledge goes on to talk about the way that kids are brought up these days and the effects on their psychology. So-called helicopter parenting, have you heard of this? You know, benefits of increased safety for kids are many, but somewhere along the way, writes Rutledge, protecting children from needless harm became conflated with shielding them from stressors and uncertainties, such as having to solve everyday problems like getting lost on one's own, that are critical for developing personal independence. So parents are sheltering kids from dangers of all sorts and not giving them the confidence to deal in an independent way with the world around them, and therefore it's having an effect. Students Millennials now are increasingly fearful. And if you're fearful, then you want a government or an authority figure to take care of you, and you're not going to be so concerned with freedom. So he says researchers have linked helicopter parenting to college students having a lower degree of self confidence. You know, I've talked on this show in the past about college students perhaps being anti free speech, and I've connected that to the lack of training in um, critical thinking skills, right? They've shown that the colleges are doing a lousy job teaching critical thinking skills. And so I was thinking of this problem, this low degree of self-confidence and, and um, you know, a, a desire to shut speech down from opposing views and stuff. I was linking that to a lack of critical thinking skills, that you would have a lack of confidence in your ability to articulate a defense of your own view and stuff if you hadn't been taught the critical thinking skills necessary to do so. And what Rutledge here is doing, he's doing it at a deeper level still, saying that not just having to do with the ability to formulate intellectual arguments or criticize arguments, you know, critical thinking skills at the level of logic, a much more basic thing that kids don't have basic confidence about just to handle themselves in the big scary world because the parents did not give them the freedom necessary to develop that. He says, uh, relatedly, a study released last month found that today's teenagers and young adults are less likely than those of past generations to engage in a range of activities involving personal independence, such as working for pay, driving, dating, and spending time with friends without adult supervision. All of those things apparently now they're less likely to do those. Now, I you know, did a lot of all these things at a, at a young age, but um, one thing in particular kind of stuck in my mind, and you know how you do, you read these things and you just connect it with your experience. I did not drive for quite a while, and I was kind of intim- intimidated with the responsibility of driving. I was kind of fearful of it. It was kind of interesting because I didn't understand that when you drive, you learn to automatize all the different inputs that are coming in and that your mind would have, you know, sort of this lightning quick reaction when, you know, a car veers into your lane or, or something like that. 
I didn't know that my brain would do that for me. I just it, it didn't understand. And if you you know go out there and you actually look at what goes on, say on a Southern California freeway or something, it can be sort of uh, you know intimidating. I've I've had things fall off of trucks in front of me and had to veer out of lanes and stuff. You know, people don't strap the ladders on the top of the trucks properly. And then suddenly there's a ladder right in front of you and you have to swerve all this stuff. Right. So I understood I was a little intimidated about that. So I sort of wondered whether I helicopter parented myself, you know, you get into all these thoughts, but doesn't it seem plausible, right? Doesn't it seem plausible that parents who overprotect their kids make them less able to be confident in their ability to operate independently in the world. And they're more fearful. They're willing to accept an authority figure telling them what to do or protecting them from the big, bad, scary world out there. So continuing with the article, Rutledge writes, colleges and universities have exacerbated the problem of independence or actually dependence, by promoting what is sometimes called a culture of victimhood. American college students, who are some of the safest and most privileged people on the planet, are to be protected from and encouraged to be ever vigilant about and even report any behavior that could cause emotional distress. Feelings and experiences that were once considered a part of everyday life, such as being offended by someone's political views, are now more likely to be treated as detrimental to mental health. And then the victimhood culture, Rutledge goes on to write, is also contagious. They say that studies show that when one group is accused of causing harm to others, members of the accused group become more inclined to feel that their group is being discriminated against. And it goes on and on. So, fear. Fear is at the heart of all these issues, writes Rutledge. Fear of failure, ridicule, discomfort, ostracism, uncertainty. Of course, he writes, these fears haunt all of us regardless of demographics, but that's precisely the point. Our culture isn't preparing young people to grapple with what are ultimately unavoidable threats. So people have higher and higher levels of anxiety today, and he thinks that that is the cause. Now, Overall, I could say, well, this could be an explanation in a certain way. It could be an explanation in terms of, you know, the psychological pressure on people. But is this a determinative factor? No, of course not, right? There are plenty of people um, who are prone to anxiety who are also staunch advocates of freedom, right? You, it doesn't mean that you can't be a staunch advocate of freedom. You can choose to you know, recognize that the right way to be is free, even if you yourself experience fear about it, you know, you, you fear and you act anyway, right? You have, you have fear and you act anyway, you, you do what you think is right. And I, you know, I've talked about this in other shows and everything else about suppose you're intimidated by Barack Obama's attack watch, or you're intimidated by Trump's tweets about, you know, if you criticize him, he's going to start tweet, you know, tweeting about you. Nonetheless, you think it's the right thing to do and you're going to go ahead and, and do it anyway. That's what people can choose to do. What this does, though, I think help to explain is why it's more difficult for people to make that choice and why particularly without the proper intellectual equipment, they would be less likely to make that choice, right? So 
I happen, you know, to benefit from exposure to Ayn Rand's ideas and stuff. So if I'm fearful about something, I'm still going to be able to know intellectually what is right and have the resolve, you know, to the extent that I'm confident in what is the right thing to do, I'm going to go ahead and act accordingly. I'm not going to be totally crippled by the fear. But if you don't have that, this is where the ideology comes in. Now, then you say, okay, well, what is the answer? Of course, one of the answers is to spread the right ideas because the right ideas can help you combat not just, you know, this particular problem, but any of the particular problems that might have resulted from your upbringing or experiences or anything else that you have, right? If you have the right ideas, then you can have the resolve to act the right way accordingly. There's something else as well, though, too, and, and you know, I was thinking, okay, you know, what, what are part of the solutions for this? Another part of the solution is to have good early education because whatever errors a parent might make, sometimes if you have a good influence of teachers or a really nice environment, so for example, Montessori education, there's been a revival in Montessori education and the value of that recently. Montessori instills independent thinking and independent motivation, you know, a, a motivation that comes from within the child to learn and do and explore and teaches the kids self-confidence. So to the extent that a parent, you know, maybe a parent is even aware of this issue and is doing their best not to be the helicopter parent, but, you know, they themselves, you know, whatever they're upbringing, you know, they do what they can, but they're not perfect. To the extent that we have a positive educational environment that fosters independent thinking and self-confidence in the kids that can help counter some of this. So to me, it also, it highlights the importance of that early education for kids as well, at least early education, if not later education, but what does our government want to do today, right? Our government wants to take over early education as well. They want to have, you know, universal government daycare for all the kids. So um, in any event, uh, that's what I'm getting out of this. And I know that probably Yaron Brook, who I have to thank for sending the link out, he was sending this link out on Twitter this morning. He'll probably talk about this on his show as well. But that, that's my perspective on it, you know, in, in terms of it definitely seems plausible that this could be an explanation for why young Americans are not making the choice to endorse freedom, to be in favor of freedom, to be in favor of, you know, political policy that would protect freedom. They, they're they fearful. And what are the ways that you counter that? You can give them the intellectual ammunition in terms of ideas. It's not necessarily going to make them not feel the fear, but it can make them have the confidence to act in the face of the fear and maybe eventually help, you know, ameliorate the fear problem as well, because they have this um, you know, reputation with themselves. You develop a reputation with yourself of feeling the fear and acting anyway in, in the face of it. So the intellectual component and then also whatever you can do in terms of, you know, parents being aware of the issue and not to the extent that they can be the helicopter parent and also go for that self-confidence instilling early education, support Montessori because it tends to make kids into independent thinkers who have confidence in their ability to, to deal with the world. 
Speaking of emotions, I wanted to just go to an exchange that I had with somebody on Twitter. I just, you know, every so often I just get a random question. And if you want to tweet and ask a question, sometimes I'll be in a position where I can go back and forth and answer a little bit. Doug Snyder on Twitter asked on the weekend, he says, how as objectivists do we become less emotional and more rational? I wonder what your thoughts are about this. Thanks. So first thing I went back to him with was a question, a clarification question. I said, why does becoming more rational entail becoming less emotional? Maybe that's not quite what you mean, right? Because you could actually maybe be more emotional if you were more rational, if your emotions are in line with your reason. This is my thinking. So then I get him to clarify and he says, he says, I mean, as emotional beings, how do we listen more to reason and less to our emotions? What works for you? So now I get he is, I think, making somewhat of an error here, right? I say, well, I think we should always listen to the emotions. Um, actually, I'm a little bit vague in my answer to him, but I, he understood what I meant. Listen to them, the emotions, not and I, I guess it's not so vague because emotions is plural and I said them. So I think it's it's not a vague reference. Okay, fine. I said we should always listen to them. I think we can unpack a lot potentially if we do. You're not going to just say, oh, well, that's just an emotion. I'm not going to listen to it at all. You should say, okay, you know, what is this emotion telling me? Is there something there that I should be aware of? Um, and my my first reaction was, you know, that there's there's a difference between listening to them versus acting based on your emotions without first using your reason to decide. That would be the bad thing, right? You've got time to consider you know, to do A or B, suppose you have a choice, you know, you can do A or B, you have time to think about it. It's not like you have to act immediately. You've got reason, you think, telling you, okay, do A, and you have your emotion telling you do B, but you've got some time to think about it. Why not actually try to unpack and figure out what it is that your emotion is telling you? You know, why am I feeling this? What's about, you know, what's going on with that? Why does that bother me so much? Or why is it that I'm inclined to do B when I think rationally I should do A? Try to unpack it. Try to think about it. People who believe, okay, well, we have to go by reason. And so therefore, if my emotion on first glance conflicts with what my reason tells me I should do, then I think I'm just going to go ahead and ignore the emotion. You're setting yourself up for repression and resentment and horribleness. I mean, no good at all, right? And there's just so much you can learn. You want to know, why is my subconscious spitting this emotion out? Like, suppose it is a completely irrational emotion. Unless you've gone through the process of trying to figure out, okay, where is that emotion coming from and why? Oh, okay, it's coming from there. And yeah, this thing happened to me when I was a kid and I interpreted it this way and okay, I can let it go. If you don't go through that process, you're just setting yourself up for more of that conflict. It's maybe even going to come back even more insistent later. I'm not telling you I'm perfect at this process at all, but I'm telling you that this is what I try to do. If I've got emotions there, try to say, okay, you know, what are these based on and not to shut them down. When I was younger, it's like, oh yeah, I know what the right thing to do is and I just do the right thing and, you know, forget all that childhood stuff and I don't need to learn psychology. I don't need to No, you will make a number of mistakes in life if you ignore 
that whole realm. So being rational doesn't mean not being emotional. And if you go through this and you listen to your emotions and you find that what you want intellectually is also in line with what you want emotionally, it's going to be even better and and more awesome. So anyway, hopefully you, you find that helpful. But, you know, again, going back to this, issue of the helicopter parenting and stuff, maybe some of those kids could read this article and learn to say, oh, yeah, maybe some of my fear, you know, maybe what's going on here is that I'm feeling fear, if they can even identify that what they're feeling is fear. Maybe immediately they go straight to anger, you know. Let's let's shut down Charles Murray when he comes to Middlebury, you know. Maybe they don't even let themselves experience the fear. They're going to have to unpack. But hopefully that's the kind of thing that they can go through and they can they can learn a lot. Robert says, objectivists are a lot like people. <laughs> Imagine, right, that they are. I, I would say that, yeah, uh, or objectivists are subject to a lot of the same errors in personal development that other people are as well. Maybe because they're more intellectual than you'd say, okay, well, they're more subject to a subset of errors, rationalism in particular. Yeah, that's that's the way that I would go ahead and put it. So let's see what I've got also in these program notes. I've got a few minutes left here. I've got a few more things that I wanted to talk to you about. But I wanted to connect the issue of of emotion there because I think it is useful to, to listen to them at least. Now, sometimes you don't have time. And if you have a choice in the heat of the moment, you do what you think intellectually best. You're not going to just go on your emotion. But it all has to do with you know, time and resources available to, to look at the question. So why millennials aware of freedom? Fear. And that's why I included in the program notes that song, Fade Outlines. Again, I've done it a few times. It, it's a really catchy song. But if you look at the lyrics to Fade Outlines, it really speaks to what's going on in that article. You know, again, explaining the millennials' reluctance to advocate for freedom, to embrace policies that would protect our freedom, it's because of fear. And here's the lines from uh, Phoebe Kildare, brilliant stuff. She says, it's everywhere I look from Las Vegas to right here, unfortunately. I mean, she wrote this years ago, Las Vegas. We have that fresh in our minds. She says, it's everywhere I look from Las Vegas to right here, under your dresser, right by your ear. It's creeping in sweetly. It's definitely here. There's nothing more deadly than slow-growing fear. Life was full and fruitful, and you could take a real bite, the juice pouring well over your skin's delight, but the shadow it grows and takes the depth away, leaving broken-down pieces to this priceless ballet. Fear taking away the, the richness and the fruit of life, which it can. It it can do that. So I think that's exactly what that article is about. When I've shared this in the past, it was, oh, I thought it was a catchy song I heard at Chipotle. But here it, it definitely connects lyrically to that uh, that article from the Times. What else do we have? Okay, we've got Asia's comedy scene. They're, they talk about the fact that in Asia, 
if you are a stand-up comedian, you actually need a permit to be able to tell jokes. You have to send your script to the authorities and have your jokes approved. Now, in the article, it talks about the fact that, at least now in China in particular, they don't disapprove jokes because of political content. It's because they are offensive jokes. But you know, I think as well as I know, if you have this idea that Big Brother is watching your jokes, you're probably going to censor, you're going to self-censor the political content as well. Uh, I've had an interesting discussion with a friend back and forth about this. I you know, said, is this going to happen here? Because after all, Trump has been tweeting about Jimmy Kimmel. He doesn't like Kimmel's jokes and everything. But, um, you know, she was saying, no, you know, the left is killing humor more than the right. I still believe that Trump, when his, you know, he's tweeting about equal time, even on a comedy show, that there is an implicit threat there. And it's something that we need to watch. We need to make sure that this is not our future. Uh, Trump chieftain of spite. All I really wanted to say about that was, no, Obama is not that much better then Trump, if you remember Obama, he did that press corps dinner where at the beginning he was backstage, and I swear, you heard a toilet flush. Obama sitting there talking and flushing a toilet and stuff. You hear that during an elegant press corps dinner, which is ridiculous. Um, I've got a couple other tweets, just more fun stuff. Uh, a good tweet from Snowden, don't, don't stay safe, stay free. That speaks to the fear issue as well. And a funny thing, Russia wants Bulgarians to stop painting Soviet monuments to look like American superheroes. Well, Russia might want that. I want them to continue. It's awesome. It's funny. Go check it out. And a little bit from Jezebel's Don't Stop Believing, a cover from the Journey Tune. Enjoy that. So go to the blog. Otherwise, I will talk to you guys Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern. Okay, take care.